All right, thank you, James. Good evening, Redemption. I, I know it feels like it's been a while, right? For those of you that are regulars here, I've been uh, doing a lot of traveling. Except for whatever reason, every year September is a very heavy travel season uh, for me. And uh, as of yesterday, when I got back from Chicago, I am done with traveling now until beginning of May, uh, unless something unforeseen comes up. But that's my plan. I'll be here uh, be from now until the beginning of May. So I'm glad about that. I have one other announcement that I wanted to make <clears throat> tonight. Um, I want to remind you that our next installation of Backstories is coming up um, Thursday night, October 3rd. And uh, what we're going to be doing here is, we, you heard Horacio talk about how we are one uh, church with nine congregations. And you hear a lot about Gilbert and Tempe and Peoria. Uh, one of the congregations we don't hear so much about is West Mesa. Uh, West Mesa is uh, perhaps our most unique congregation, and what I've done is I've invited the two guys that lead West Mesa to come and be interviewed, uh, Chris Amaro and Josue Lopez. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, West Mesa is, is unique is because it's our only bilingual congregation, and what, what I mean by that is that like, I have 45 minutes every Sunday to preach. Um, they have an interpreter in every one of their services which means that Chris or Josue has actually 22 and a half minutes to preach the same stuff that I get 45 minutes to preach. And I think I don't have enough time at 45 minutes. So that's one of the unique challenges that they have. Uh, the, another unique challenge is that they are located in one of the, uh, in, in, in a zip code of Maricopa County that's one of the most under-resourced zip codes in Maricopa County. Uh, one of the things that they have done there is that they have been instrumental in starting uh, an organization called Immigrant Hope, which we have been uh, helping and, and supporting uh, financially and even with some volunteers. And so I wanted to invite them in to be able to, for you to be able to hear their story. I think it'll be a wonderful um, time, and that's on October 3rd, 6.30 to 7.45 here. We need you to RSVP if you're planning on bringing kids, because we will have um, uh, child care for that, and we need to know how many people to uh, bring in for that. Today we are looking at the tenth of the ten plagues and Passover. Uh, the tenth plague is so different and devastating um, that it really needs its own message. And you cannot have the tenth plague without the Passover, or, or maybe we could say it this way, you can't have the Passover without the tenth plague. As I've talked to people about their understanding of the Bible. And, and this is an observation, it's not a value statement. But as I talk to people about their understanding of the Bible, uh, most people do know that there are 10 plagues and that the 10th is pretty devastating. And they know that there's something called a Passover in the Old Testament. What they don't know is how inextricably linked the two are. We don't have the Passover if we don't have the 10th plague. But it, the 10th plague was necessary for God to accomplish his purposes with his oppressed people, Israel, in Egypt. And so th this is a big deal. Uh, Tyler last week got to handle the first nine plagues in one message. We're going to look at one plague in this message today. And it's interesting too because when you read through this, <clears throat> all these plagues and with everything that's going on, I mean this is some tough stuff, especially this tenth plague. And I've heard People say, what is going on with God? Is, is he having a temper, temper tantrum? Did God just lose it or something? I mean, what is going on with God? And the answer is no, God is not losing it. God is clearly demonstrating in that particular context who he is. We need to understand that in Egyptian culture in that time, what, what they had done is they had taken created things and they were worshiping them as gods. They were exalting them as gods. They were doing exactly what Paul says is a problem in Romans chapter 1. Rather than worshiping the creator, we are worshiping that which is created. And so what God does is he comes in and he unravels creation in order to let people know that he is the creator. By unraveling creation, by, by, by making creation do what we would say are very unnatural things, he is demonstrating that, in fact, he is sovereign and he has all authority to be able to do that. I just realized that I am still wearing my lanyard from greeting people today. So That's awkward. Okay. <clears throat> I didn't want that to be a distraction to you or to me. Anyway, so he didn't lose it. In fact, these plagues could be described as strategic and surgical. 
specifically to be able to point the Israelites and the Egyptians to understanding who he is. And of course, the results of that understanding are going to be different whether you reject God or whether you accept God. That's another thing that we have to deal with uh, tonight. So some really, again, tough stuff, challenging stuff, but what a magnificent story. This is a big deal uh, tonight, what we're going to go through. Let me pray and we'll get started. Lord God, we... uh, we just pray, we know your spirit is here. We just pray that we would welcome your spirit and that we would allow your spirit to guide the word of God. I, I know I'm the instrument of proclaiming the word, but we need your spirit to guide the word. And in a sense, move me out of the way so that your spirit can apply your word uh, to your people and even to those who don't believe so that they might be stirred to understanding and knowing who you are. That's our prayer tonight, and we pray it in Jesus' name. So we're in Exodus, the book of Exodus, for 15 weeks. This is the sixth or seventh week. I can't read. This is week six. So we're almost halfway uh, through. Um, And in the first week of Exodus, I mentioned that Exodus, this book, is, is the key book where the people of Israel find their identity, their character, and their purpose. It's not the first book in the Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible, 39 books in there. Genesis is the first book. But I could argue that, in fact, Exodus is the nexus of the the Old Testament, and everything just radiates out past and present from from there. It, It is absolutely critical to our New Testament understanding of the gospel and to understanding who Jesus is to be able to understand Exodus. That's why we think this series is so important. It's a key book. And this passage tonight, chapters 11 and 12, is the key passage in this key book. So this is big stuff. This is about the Passover. The Passover is their gospel. It's their Easter. It's when God raises up his people in Egypt and brings them out of the tomb, their tomb that is Egypt in that sense. That's what he's doing. And most of you know that at Redemption, one of the things that we love to do, that we do very purposefully, is that we like to work verse by verse through books of the Bible. We like to work verse by verse through sections of the Bible. We're trying to cover the entire book of Exodus in 15 weeks. That's 40 chapters, and most of them with a lot of verses. So the reality is, as you you discovered two weeks ago when Wayne was here and last week when Tyler spoke, the reality is that we're not going to be able to read every single verse. But we're going to cover all of Exodus. However, tonight we are going to read every single verse because it's the Passover. I'm going to make comments about what's going on and and I will preach and proclaim. But we need to hear every single verse of this passage because it is the Passover. It is the key to everything for the Israelites. And a little warning, it's going to be tough. There's going to be tough stuff in this, just like there has been Uh, every single week. So let's just get started. And by the way, some of you are looking at chapter 11 right now and you're going, well, this won't be that hard. Two chapters. Look at chapter 11. There's only 10 verses. Uh, Just look at chapter 12. It's only 51 verses. So some of you, I hope, brought a dinner. So, okay, here we go. Don't worry. We'll finish on time or relatively close. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, Pharaoh will let you go from here. Finally, when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speaking now, speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave people favor in the sight of Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, and he was great in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and he was great in the sight of the people. So chapter 11 is interesting because there's some debate about... Um, literarily what it's doing, okay? There's two schools of thought. If you, and, and you have to look at the end of chapter 10, which Tyler talked about last week. You have to look at the end of chapter 10 to understand why this is an issue. At the end of chapter 10, Moses, uh, Pharaoh looks at Moses and he says, if you come back here one more time, if I see your face one more time, I'm going to kill you. And Moses says, deal, I'm out of here. But now we have chapter 11. And apparently, Moses has gone back to Pharaoh. But he doesn't get killed. So there's two schools of thought. I lean towards the second school. Here's the first school. The first school is that chapter 11 is actually a summary of what happened prior to the end of chapter 10. The second school of thought is this. 
Pharaoh says to Moses, you come back here again, I'm going to kill you. Moses says, deal. He turns to walk away and God begins to speak to him. Moses, there's one more thing. Turn back around, there's one more thing. And Moses is like, oh man, really? Really? I actually think that's the one. How often in our lives have you figured that God has got this all figured out? You're set, you have a plan, and it's been ordained by God, and it's his will, and he, and he has cast it down upon you, and you're ready to execute, and then all of a sudden God says, oh, just one more thing. And you're like, oh man, really? One more thing? And it kind of throws a kink into everything. But I think that's what happened. I think, I think Moses kind of, maybe it's not in the text, and I realize I'm adding to the biblical text, so I'm a heretic and all that other stuff. Write me an email later. But he, he's turning around, he goes, I, I haven't really left yet, Pharaoh, so don't kill me, but I got one more thing to tell you, okay? And this is gonna be a very hard discussion. I think that's what's happening here. And there's been nine plagues already, but Pharaoh, there's gonna be one more. Pharaoh's been stubborn, but after this plague, he will not only let the Israelites go, but he wants them gone permanently. And then verses 2 and 3 are, are, again, that plunder that God has promised the people of Israel. He promised it in in Exodus chapter 3, if you think back to that message. He promised it there. But this is not plunder that's taken by force. You know, when you're you're on a military campaign and you conquer a nation, one of the things that you get is you get the spoils of war. You get the plunder. You get to plunder that nation. That's not what's happening here. They're not conquering Egypt. They're trying to leave Egypt. So the only way I can think of this is this is like some form of an ancient GoFundMe account or maybe a Kickstarter program. It's, it's the Israelites saying, look, we want to get out of your hair. We want to go live a different life and maybe you could help us do that. that that's the only way that I can sort of... And the people of Israel, most of the people of Israel, they're way ahead of Pharaoh on this. They're like, would you just please leave? We're done with all of these plagues. Please leave. Some people have even gone to Pharaoh and said, what's wrong with you? Why don't you just let these people leave? Now, when we were talking about this in Preaching Collective, Tim Mon, who's the pastor at, um, at Gilbert, he said this. I thought this was fascinating. He said, you know, about this plunder, he said, it's funny how much some people will pay in order to avoid God. It's funny how much some people will pay in order to avoid God. And that's not just in money. How, how often have, have you and I, we were willing to give up something. We were willing to pay something. We were willing to turn our backs on something. We were willing to pay some price in order to try to avoid God. And then we find out even in the end that still isn't enough because you can't avoid God. Ultimately, God is going to win because he's God. And then again, remember, this fulfills this prophecy, not only in Exodus 3, but also we find it in Genesis 15, hundreds of years earlier, when God says, I will bring judgment on the nation that enslaved my people, and my people shall come out with great possessions. And then finally, in in verse 3, it says that Moses had become great. He'd become great in the land. He'd become great... uh, before the servants of Pharaoh, and he had become great before the people of Egypt. So why had he become great? Again, speculate, lots of speculation tonight, but here's some of the speculation. Um, Some of the people may have been looking at Moses and thinking, well, he's a god. Look at the things he's doing. He must be a god. So that made him great. Other people maybe were looking at him and saying, you know, Moses is a man of character and perseverance, and that made him great. We don't know for sure what the answer is, but But we do know this, either way, whether they think he's a God or they think he's a man of great character, we do know this, Moses followed God. And as a result, the people saw that he was great. Now, we need to work on the definition of great in there. Because a lot of people hear that and think it's transactional. If I just do what God asked me to do, then I'm going to become great. Okay, what is the definition of great? Well, sometimes the definition of great is that God will exalt you. He will lift you up. He will bring great favor on you from the world and the world's people. Sometimes that's what it means. But sometimes what it means is that you will be great in the midst of persecution and oppression. You will be great in the midst of great suffering and great trials. Either way, the point is, is that we're called to follow God, and Moses followed God. Now look at verses 4 through 10. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, he's talking to Pharaoh now, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, 
And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there have never been before and never will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of my people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Moses is mad now. Hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Uh, My wonders may be multiplied can also be translated, my greatness will be multiplied. God is great, and he's demonstrating that. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So, verse 5, that whole issue of the firstborn. We need to remember, we've talked about this several times, there are two kinds of justice that God executes. Retributive justice, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and restorative or redemptive justice. And each of those justices, we need to remember that God is demonstrating and manifesting different characteristics. In retributive justice, we see God's strength, his holiness, his judgment, his authority, his sovereignty, and his justice, the fact that he is just. In his redemptive justice, we see God's grace, we see his love, we see his mercy, and we see his compassion. The challenge for some of us is that you can't have one without the other and have him still be God. He has to have both. We really do just want a God of love. We get to define what love is, which means we get to do whatever we want and God will show us favor. And that's just not the way it works. Because we live in an unjust world. We live in a sinful world. We live in a corrupt world. And so there are going to be times when God has to execute his retributive justice as well. And those of us who really do want a God of love, in reality... We also appreciate that God is a God of retributive justice too, as long as it's on those other people. I'm the one who gets grace. We don't say that out loud very often, but that's just the reality of it. So for God to be who he is, he has to have both retributive and redemptive justice. And this is a case of that. Israel is God's firstborn. And what Egypt has done through these pharaohs, including this one right now, is he has killed Egyptians. He has committed infanticide. He's killed all the male babies that are born. He has oppressed God's people. He's, he, th- this is what he's doing to God's firstborn. And so Egypt, you're going to now suffer through the devastation of your firstborn. Egypt, this is going to be hard on you. And verse 7 may seem unimportant. We tend to just blow by that, but it's a key verse. He's going to demonstrate that he differentiates between Egypt and Israel. God's purpose in the Exodus is that both the Israelites and the Egyptians would know who God is. There's just going to be different results. Verse 7 is a poetic way of saying this. God is saying, you know, you will know that I am the Lord, the one true God, because the oppressors will now suffer and those who have been oppressed will now be liberated. You will know. In verse 8, Moses is mad. Now, why is that? Again, speculation, we don't know. But most scholars land here. Moses already knows that Pharaoh will not give in. Even at the threat of this tenth plague, with the track record of the nine first plagues, Pharaoh will not give in. And so devastation is coming. And even though the devastation will not be executed against Moses' people, he's still upset that people, period, are going to suffer. Because of this. And, and he's looking at Pharaoh and he's just saying, in his mind, he's got to be saying, what's wrong with you? All you have to do is let us go. And this devastation doesn't happen. What is wrong with you? That's why he's angry. All of us who are believers, we, we experience the same thing with family and friends who are not believers. When we go to them and, and, and time after time after time after time, they've made foolish decisions that are rebellious against God and his wisdom and his principles and his teachings. And, and it goes badly for them. And we say, can't you just, just, just come to God? 
Allow his grace to love you. Come to God. And they say, no, I'm going to do it my way. I know better. And we get angry. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a righteous anger. In verse 10, that leads into verse 10. It says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so it's very easy for us to look at that and also say, so then this is all God's fault. It's not Pharaoh's fault, it's God's fault. No. You got to remember, Tyler talked about this last week. It's not like Pharaoh is a really good guy that's just trapped in an unwinnable situation. No, Pharaoh is evil. Pharaoh is wicked. And remember, Pharaoh hardened his own heart during the first five plagues. God only chooses to hasten the hardening of Pharaoh's heart during the second five plagues. Again, it's Paul in Romans chapter 1. Pharaoh, you are hardening your heart against who I am and against knowing me. I'm just going to give you what you want now. I've given you chance after chance after chance. I'm going to give you exactly what you want. This is what you want. I'm going to help you with that now. It's that simple. There's no other explanation for it. And I know for some, that seems a tad dismissive for some of you. I don't know what else to say. There's nothing else to it. He's God. And this is what he chose to do in order to make justice in an unjust situation. Now, here you go. I, know, I have conversations with people. I read essays. So many people are sure they could do this better than God does it. So many people do. They really do. They, we don't say it out loud, but we do. We do. And so if you would like, I'm sure you could apply for the job of God. I, I, as I understand it now, there is actually a WUFU form on the internet where you can fill out an application to be God. And God's elders will read that WUFU form, and if they think that you could do a better job than God, you got the, you got the job. Okay, I can see your face. Still a little sarcastic and snarky for you. Okay, Mr. and Mrs. Jim Carrey, I'm sorry if that is hard. Bruce or Brucine Almighty. Listen, Pharaoh had every opportunity to turn this thing around. God is giving him what he wants. And as a result, listen to this. Pharaoh is now a leader under divine judgment. Pharaoh is now a leader of people who is under divine judgment. And we are going to see that as a leader who chose to rebel against God, his rebellion will not only cost him, but it will cost the people he leads. And there are people in Egypt who are not on board with Pharaoh's plan. They're not. They're telling Pharaoh, let these people go, man. Haven't, can't you see? And they will still suffer from this judgment. That's, that's the challenge here. It's really hard stuff. And I know, again, looking at some of your faces, I get it. Happy Sunday. Isn't it fun to be here right now? But this is serious stuff. We take God seriously at redemption. One of our seven core values is we take God seriously, but not ourselves. Okay, I think that's a great core value. Um, but I want to mention this, and I want to use a word and, and then explain why this is so important. So many people want a church where, where it, here you go, they want an anthropocentric church. Does it, you, know what it, you know what I mean by an anthropocentric church? A couple of you are nodding your heads and even smiling at me. Okay, here you go. An anthropocentric church is a church where you go and you walk in and essentially you're the one being worshipped. You're told about how wonderful you are, how you're really good, you're really a good person and any evil you do is just a mistake or, or, or something. It's not really sin. No, people aren't sinners. They're not wicked. Uh, they change amazing grace. They change the word a wretch like me to a soul like me. Everything is about the person and how wonderful you are. And, and here you go. And, and they tell you, you know, things like this. If, if you can conceive it and believe it, you can achieve it. And you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And God is hardly ever mentioned. And there are big churches like that because that sounds good to so many of us. We're not an anthropocentric church. We are a theocentric church. We are a God-centered church. We believe that all of life is all for Jesus. We understand that though God created us in his image, and that is good, we are also fallen because of sin. And there's nothing we can do to reconcile ourselves to God in that sin other than what Jesus has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. That's the only way. And so we talk about the gospel, and we talk about God, and we talk about his grace and his mercy on us who desperately need it. It's the only thing that we really do need. 
And so we're a theocentric church. And I will also tell you that, that my personal preference as a leader and, and as somebody who's part of a people, okay, I never want to be a people or, or, or a church that's under the judgment of God. I just don't. I mean, that's pretty precarious. I, I, this is so weird. This morning, I'm walking through the parking lot here. I've been a pastor for 20 years. Nothing like this has ever happened. I'm walking through the parking lot this morning at 7.30. What did we preach on last week? We preached on the nine plagues. One of the nine plagues was the frogs, right? And, and we, we, got a, we, got a really good, we got really good instruction on just how gross that whole frog thing was, okay? Um, no, not kidding. I'm walking, never in my 20 years, I'm walking through. There's a little plastic frog on the parking lot. I said, oh man, God, what are you trying to tell me? <laughs> it, it's a little freaky. And so if this is your plastic frog or your kid's plastic frog, this was not funny. Okay? Just need to know that. I'll just keep that little frog right there where I can keep an eye on him. Okay? So this is what we're dealing with here. But now we start to get a glimpse of the restorative justice, the redemptive justice that is coming. So look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. What James read for us. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you at the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. That's really interesting. I'll mention that in a second. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each of you can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take the lamb, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill their lambs at twilight. So for 20 verses now, at the beginning of chapter 12, God speaks to Moses, gives him instruction. And then Moses has a speech in the next seven verses, 21 through 27, for the elders of Israel that he delivers uh, about four days later. And both speeches, the speech that God gives to Moses and the speech that Moses gives to the elders, in both of those speeches, it ends by drawing attention to the importance of commemorating the Passover, memorializing the Passover, remembering the Passover. Like Easter, the Passover didn't just happen and then it was forgotten. It happened and then it was proclaimed and it was celebrated year after year after year. So verse, verse 1, the Passover is so important that God rearranges the entire calendar because of the Passover. Imagine the upheaval that we would have if God came in and re or the government came in and just completely rearranged our calendar right now. That would be wild. But that's how important it is. And notice the incredible detail. There's great detail in all of these verses, but two things in these verses stand out. First of all, the lamb is to be without blemish. Does that sound familiar in the New Testament? That's Jesus, who is without sin. He is the lamb of God. And then there's the call to be involved in your community. Notice that in order to do the Passover right, you're going to have to work in community to be able to do that, to get the amount of the lamb correct. You have to work with others. The faith community is important to God. We were created for community and for relationship. Verses 7 through 13. This is the central paragraph of all of these verses. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. The idea of the bitter herbs is not because it adds a wonderful taste element to the meal, but rather the bitter herbs is to remind the people of their bitter time in Egypt, because it was a very bitter time. Do not eat any of the lamb, raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat the lamb with your belt fastened, your, fat, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. There's a dress code for how to eat the Passover meal. And you shall eat it in haste. You're going to eat it very fast. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. 
The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Again, notice the detail in the instructions for God's people. Of the ten plagues, this is the first one where God's people actually get instructions. That's how important this one is. And here you go. It is the blood and only the blood that saves. This is so important because there have been and still are over the last several decades so many movements, not outside of the church, but inside the church that want to say that atonement does not happen through the blood. That, that, that saying that our sins are atoned for through blood is offensive and violent. One person even calls it violence pornography that we would even think such a thing. And here's just an example. A couple weeks ago, I finished reading a book by a seminary professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And by the way, Jackie's grandfather went to that seminary, and he was a Baptist preacher. And in this book, just two of the things that this guy wrote about. Remember, he's a seminary professor. Just because your school has the word seminary in it doesn't mean that they're speaking biblical truth there. You need to understand that, okay? Uh, The first thing he said is that the reason Jesus went to the cross was because he was um, a political rebel and the Romans needed to kill him to keep there from being a political uprising and it was the Romans who executed him on the cross. Read your gospel. The Romans were compliant, but it wasn't them who killed Jesus. And that was not the reason that Jesus was killed. He was not a political problem. He was killed by the Jews. He was killed by his own people. Because he claimed to be God. Here's the second thing this, this professor writes about. He says, the atonement does not come through the blood of Jesus. But rather our atonement comes from seeing Jesus as an example of how we are to live our lives. And that's how we atone from our sins. Is we live a life as close to Jesus as we possibly can. Understanding that we're going to fail everywhere. And that's okay. That's not right either. Read the book of Hebrews. Read Exodus. Atonement comes from the blood. And I know that offends some people, but that's the only way it happens. Here you go. I've said this before. Go ahead and disagree with the Bible. Say you don't believe this. Say you disagree with it. Go ahead and do that. But at least be intellectually honest about it and disagree with it. Don't try to tell us that the Bible says something that it doesn't say. And that's what this guy is doing. And it's heresy. It is false teaching. And he's leading people astray. By teaching that. It's only the blood that saves. Now, in the Old Testament, God has both moral laws and ceremonial laws. And we get a little mixed up about that at times. It's important to understand that. These are ceremonial laws that the people of Israel are to observe as he judges Egypt and as they commemorate Passover every year after. They're ceremonial laws. And verse 11 is so interesting. God is telling Moses that The manner in which they eat the Passover lamb is to emulate the manner in which they will leave Egypt, dressed and ready for immediate travel. That's what you're supposed to do. Verse 8 also points to the haste at which they will leave Egypt. The bread that they will prepare will never have a chance to be yeasted. That's the leaven. Isn't it interesting that the importance of unleavened bread gets started 3,500 years ago because the Israelites had to move fast when they left Egypt? And then verse 12 is devastating. God says, I will strike down the firstborn. But he ends that statement by saying this, I will execute judgments, I am the Lord. Here's what God is saying. He is declaring his sovereignty and his authority with that one statement. He is making himself known. He's declaring his sovereignty and his authority. Now, this Passover process with the blood, what is it doing for the Israelites? Well, here you go, three things. The blood is protection for the house of God's people. The blood is purity for the people of God. And the blood is the mechanism for God's people being cleansed and consecrated or set apart for his purposes. So the blood, it's atonement, it's protection, purity, and consecration. It's salvation. That's what it is. When we come to Jesus, understand, we are delivered from the eternal consequences of our sin. That's protection and deliverance and salvation. We are made righteous by Jesus' blood, 
his death and his resurrection. In other words, we, we are made holy and pure. And we are called to live a life worthy of the gospel. We're cleansed and consecrated. We're set apart for his work and his purposes. Verses 14 through 20. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But whatever, uh, what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, the person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You notice how God is repeating himself here? Has he gone crazy? Does he have dementia? No, he's trying to let them know how important this is. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Notice it's unleavened bread for seven days, not just one day. One scholar says this, it's not just about getting the Israelites out of Egypt. That's what they are commemorating. But it's not just about that. Because it's seven days, it's also this, this idea of getting Egypt with its sin and its oppression and its injustice out of God's people. Well, what about all this getting cut off stuff? A lot of people are going to get cut off here. As mentioned in the Old Testament, God has... Uh, moral laws and ceremonial laws. While the moral laws are generally the ones that are carried into the New Testament, God wants the ceremonial laws taken seriously as well. And the reason is this, memorializing, remembering, and celebrating what God has done and the victories of his people are important. And if we don't do that, we will forget and we will lose our identity and we will lose our purpose if we don't do those things. In the New Testament, Paul talks all the time about the importance of remembering Jesus, remembering the cross, remembering his resurrection. The Passover meal, the Passover meal here that is described is a retelling of the story of Israel's salvation, their exodus from Egypt, in order that God's people never forget. The Lord's Supper is a retelling of Jesus' death. And it's all about memorializing and remembering Jesus' death. We proclaim his death until he comes again. And interesting that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, communion, at the Passover meal. And he said at that Passover meal, he said, do this in remembrance of me. It's all about commemoration, memorializing, remembering. It's why memorial services are so, for loved ones who have passed away are so important to us. Coming to church each week. It's a form of memorializing, remembering, and celebrating the gospel. And, and, and don't miss this. It's done in community. We are created in God's image as relational communal beings. We were not created for isolation or solitude. We have no identity apart from one another. We are a body. And it was the same for the Jews. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, nothing changes regarding the importance of community and relationships and sharing and celebrations and remembering. And so now Moses speaks a few days later to the elders. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out from the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. You're passing it down. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. 
Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So God is just. He judges between evil and righteousness. And notice that we are to pass down the Passover. In our case, it would be that we need to pass down the gospel to the next generation. And one of the ways we do that is through memorialization, through remembering. And here are three ways, in the Passover anyway, to be able to remember. First, there's the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. Second, there's the eating of the one-year-old no-blemish lamb. And third, there's the giving to God all the firstborn of humans and of livestock. Here's how one commentator sums it up. Actions, events, and preparations help us remember. Actions, events, and preparations, that helps us to remember. For the Christian, the Lord's Supper was instituted at the Passover meal. And, as Wayne said two weeks ago, we also use our giftedness. When you and I, gifted by the Holy Spirit, use those gifts for the building up and the encouragement of the body, of God's body, we are, in a sense, commemorating the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. That's part of it. And then I know, verse 23, who is this destroyer or what is this destroyer? You've got to answer that, Pastor Frank. Okay. The first thing I did, I admit, and this is weird, and, and surprisingly to me, I looked this up on the internet. Did you know that there is not one single professional athlete, current or past, who is nicknamed the Destroyer? I mean, that just sounds like a perfect nickname for a great athlete, right? The Destroyer. But think about it. I, I mean, Serena Williams, Roger Federer, Gordie Howe, LeBron James, Tiger Woods, Tom Brady, Rocky Balboa, none of them. None of them nickname the destroyer. It's just waiting. Anyway, the identity of the destroyer is not known. We don't know. But we do know that the destroyer is not operating outside the will of God. He is he, she, it. The destroyer is an instrument of God's judgment. Some people have described the destroyer as a dark angel. Others as a bright angel. Others as a demon. We don't know. A spirit, a wind, a force. We don't know. But that's not the key. The key is the fact that God is sovereign and he can and make he he will do whatever he needs to do for his purposes to be achieved. And now here it comes the fulfillment of his promises verses 39 29 through 32. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, and he said, All right, go up, get out of here from among my people. Both you and the people of Israel, go, serve the Lord as you have said, and take your flocks, take your herds as you have said, and be gone. And then I love this. And bless me also. What's going on there? Pharaoh says, and bless me also. Here you go. Once again, the easiest, the simplest explanation is usually the right explanation. This is what all the scholars say. There are people in this world who thumb their nose at God, rebel against God, refuse to know God, refuse to acknowledge God, will not listen to God, will not obey God, mock God, think that God is funny, and then want all the blessings of God. It just doesn't work that way. And Pharaoh's one of those people. I don't want to know you, God, but you need to bless me. That's just arrogance. Pharaoh was an arrogant guy. And, and then there's that clause in there. There was a great cry in Egypt. This is the second time we've heard this in, the, in this text. There was a great cry in Egypt. I'll bet. Man, when reality strikes, you and I, we just put it off, we put it off, we put it off, we put it off. We ignore, we ignore, we rebel, we rebel. And then when reality strikes, we cry out. We motor along so casually in our sin, in our rebellion, and with our false gods. This is such an unpopular truth, but, but God is going to judge. And God has the final word, and maybe not now. I know some of you are waiting for God's justice to be meted out because there's a lot of injustice in this world. He's going to do it. He'll get around to it. 
It took hundreds of years for him to judge Egypt, but he got around to it in his time. Verses 33 through 36. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we, all, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened and, kneading their, and uh, their kneading bowls and being bound up in their clothes, cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So the Israelites leave in haste. There's no time for the bread to be leavened and to rise and thus the celebration of the unleavened bread. And then there's the plundering. Again, it's not the plundering in the sense that they'd conquered the Egyptians, but rather this is the fulfillment of God's earlier promises to his people. And notice that God keeps fulfilling his promises. But there's also some irony in this plundering. I want you to think about this. How often up to this point in history had the Egyptians gone out and conquered other peoples and plundered them? A little bit of retribution here. And how much had the Egyptians over the last several hundred years plundered God's people, the Israelites, by making them slaves? Again, a little bit of retribution here. Verses 37 through 42. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Verse 38 is interesting. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night, is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So 600,000 men, so it's actually more like two or three million people that go. And verse 38, notice, it's not just Israelites. There were apparently some Egyptians who said, I'm done. <laughs> I'm going with them. Okay? Isn't that interesting? And they became God's people. Have you become one of God's people? Are you going with God? And, and this language of the hosts of the Lord went out from Egypt. Hosts. That's ancient military language. Israel, in, in a sense, is referred to as God's army. But this is an army that did not have to fire a shot. And then the last bit, 53, 43 through 51. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it. After you have circumcised him, no foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all of his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native in the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. Uh, interesting, some non-Jewish people wanted to go with them. But in order to go with them, they had to be circumcised. Think about that. These are, these are grown adult men with no medical technology who are willing to be circumcised in order to, be, to go with God's people. I mean, that's significant, I think. I think we can't pass over that. And here's three other things that we've got to mention. First of all, I hope you see the kind of a parallel with New Testament baptism and communion. No one eats the lamb unless they're circumcised. If you're not a Christian, you don't partake in the Lord's Supper. And if you are a Christian, in obedience to Jesus, you should be baptized. baptized baptiz baptism doesn't save you, but rather it's a testimony that you are saved. Second of all, the Passover lamb is not to have any broken bones. Again, does that sound familiar? Jesus was crucified between two criminals. They broke the criminal's bones at the end, but they didn't break Jesus' bones to fulfill this prophecy. And third... 
Look at the obedience of God's people. Now, unfortunately, this is only temporary. We'll talk more about that next week. But at least here we see a picture of the obedience of God's people. This is an amazing text, isn't it? I think it's amazing. And here's the big question, I think. Do you see Jesus in this text? I, I do. I just see Jesus everywhere in this text. John the Baptist clearly had Exodus on his mind when he declares in the Gospel of John, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is good news. That is good news. Tom Schrader, one of our founding pastors, my mentor, he tells the story of when they planted East Valley Bible Church. And one year they, be, they, they said, you know what, we need to have a, a, a Passover meal. We need to do that. But we need to know how to prepare the lamb. We know from scripture that it's, to put, it's to be, not to be boiled or raw, that it's supposed to be roasted. But we'd like to know more about how to properly prepare the lamb. So he asked staff to call synagogues in the area to ask them what they do to prepare the lamb. Every single synagogue said, you know what, we... we, we we, we actually, we don't use lamb anymore. We just use chicken. And Tom said, you know, it just doesn't have the same ring to it. Behold, the chicken of God who takes away the sin of the world. I miss Tom. Anyway, it's good news that he's the lamb of God. No more lambs are going to be sacrificed. No more chickens are going to be sacrificed. No more pigeons are going to be sacrificed. Jesus is the last sacrifice. He's the last lamb. For salvation from our sin, we put our faith in Jesus. And we celebrate that, and we remember that, and we memorialize that, and we proclaim it until he comes again. We must also remember that Pharaoh's evil is a picture of our evil. It is. And without the gospel of Jesus, that evil wins. God had to intervene with the Passover for Pharaoh to be defeated and put in his place. God has to intervene with us by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in order to give us to Jesus so that through his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, we might be reconciled to God. There's a New Testament scholar named Alec Motyer, and he was once asked, tell us about the connection between the Old and New Testaments. And Motyer replied, think about it. Think of what an Israelite would say on the way to Canaan after passing through the Red Sea. If you asked an Israelite, who are you? He might reply, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death and in bondage. But I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And our mediator led us out and we crossed over. Now we're on our way to the promised land, though we're not there yet. But he has given us his law to make us a community. And he has given us a tabernacle because we must live by grace and forgiveness. And he is present in our midst And he will stay with us until we arrive home. And then Ma'ir added these words. That's exactly what a Christian says, almost word for word. That's the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And we thank you for for this Passover event and the commemoration of it. And, and, And how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. And so God, I pray that we would just give our lives to you to your son Jesus, that we would be in Christ and Christ would be in us and that we would remember. And as we come to your table right now, that we would remember again. We would remember the Lord's death for us until he comes again. We pray that in his name. Amen.